Hello, and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today, as we track the Silver King's transition from soldier to civilian life, we have a bonus episode that's devoted to the New Yorker magazine. I thought it was important in my pursuit of context about the King's War to share resources and ideas throughout my research about Stanley's War. As I share my own New Yorker stories, the magazine, founded in 1925 by Harold Ross, has just celebrated its 98th birthday. I'm producing this episode on February 27th of 2023. This is the centennial year for our hero, the Silver King. And of course, he and the New Yorker were born just years apart. The magazine in a city that the King loved, New York City. My New Yorker stories began 65 years ago in 1958 in Chicago. My mother's sister, Phyllis Gordon, was a lifelong subscriber to the New Yorker magazine, and it may have begun when she requested a subscription during her time in Europe as a member of the Red Cross serving in Germany in 1944. She requested a subscription for the magazine from her brother, Norman Gordon, in Chicago. Over 65 years of reading and loving and learning, enjoying the New Yorker magazine, I've explored every part of the world that it's covered. And it's really made me a a deeper, better citizen and someone with a lot of respect for what it takes to be a writer. I use the New Yorker writers as a teacher of writing in Portland, Oregon, for a course I call City Stories. It's a brief, intense series of weeks where my students write each week a thousand words about city stories, stories that may include Portland or New York, Chicago, or Paris. And I owe all that really to a remarkable aunt, Phyllis Gordon, who introduced me to the magazine in her apartment on Sheridan Road, just off Lake Michigan in Chicago in 1958. Forty-two years later, in 2000, Scribner published a phenomenal book about the history of the New Yorker magazine by a writer named Ben Yagoda. The book's title is about town, the New Yorker, and the world it made. And having just completed some good reading and understanding of Dame Rebecca West in recent episodes, I thought it would be important to share some of the information that Yagoda developed about Rebecca West and the New Yorker history. In a chapter of the book called Sophistication and Its Discontents, 1938-51, to Yagoda wrote of 
Harold Ross' hiring of the famed critic Edmund Wilson. It was 1943, and Yagoda wrote, At roughly the same time that Catherine White returned, Edmund Wilson came on as literary critic. Wilson was esteemed for his books. To the Finland Station, The Shock of Recognition, and The Wound and the Bow. But in 1942, was financially strapped and proposed to Ross that the New Yorker underwrite a new literary magazine and make me editor. Nothing came of this idea, but the following year, when Clifton Fadiman stepped down as book critic, Ross offered Wilson the position, which was described by Bennett Cerf as the most highly prized of its kind in the country, telling him, you seem to be the only man for the job, standing alone among possibilities like a large, isolated mountain. With flattery on that level and at a salary of $8,000 a year, plus 3000 in living expenses, how could Wilson not accept? Wilson was a critic, the likes of which the magazine had never seen. He believed in writing for general readers and had no truck with academic jargon. He had been a working journalist with Vanity Fair and the New Republic, but he would make no compromises for any audience in his standards or his range of illusion and reference. Unlike any previous New Yorker critic, with the exception of Louise Bogan and Louis Mumford, his base assumption was that what mattered in any work under question was its artistry, not its capacity to entertain, amuse, or divert. Yagoda continued, Wilson's high standards and intellectual rigor set the model for subsequent New Yorker book criticism. And in the late 40s, when the pace of his reviews slackened somewhat, he was spotted on various occasions by such estimable critics as Cyril Conley, Alfred Kazin, Anthony West, Harold Lasky, Lionel Trilling, and George Orwell. The case could be made that Wilson's British counterpart was Rebecca West, Anthony's mother, and she formed a close association with the New Yorker at this time as well. She had contributed occasionally over the years, but a new phase began in 1945, when Ross sent her a terse cable asking her to cover the treason trial of William Joyce, who during the war had broadcast pro-German radio programs under the name Lord Ha Ha. West Dispatch, subsequently included in her book, The Meaning of Treason, struck a new note for the magazine's reportage. It was dense, meditative, and highly intelligent, yet grounded in the facts. You would not think of it as Ross's kind of thing, yet he was highly impressed and said, Your repertorial instinct amazes me, and your thoroughness, he wrote West the next year. It is a thing of wonder. You have exactly the right idea as to how to get such stories as you have been writing, which is to follow developments through thoroughly from start to finish and know the background of all the developments. No working reporters these days know that that is the way to cover a story. They drop around occasionally and hit the thing a couple of slapdashes, and that is that. It would be hard to imagine two individuals less alike than Ross and West, but they would form a close friendship, cemented in 1947, 
when she came to the United States, stayed with him in his house in Connecticut, and covered a South Carolina lynching trial for the New Yorker in her inimitable style. You know, as faithful followers of the Silver King, that in pursuit of his war, of course, I had been tracking the development of the atomic weapons at Los Alamos, which ended the war in the Pacific. Much of my research about the development of the weapons focused on the espionage and stealing of secrets throughout the country. That work led me to Rebecca West's book, The New Meaning of Treason, which was published in 1964, and I'm reading it right now as I'm telling you this story. Ben Yagoda chronicled the development of the magazine earlier in the same chapter in his book, and he writes, In any number of ways, the Second World War was a turning point for the New Yorker. The war thrust it, not necessarily willingly, onto a wider stage, forever removed from it the label of humor magazine, robbed it, as even the Depression had not, of the comfortable luxury of non-committal politics. This last process began well before Pearl Harbor and found one of its first expressions, interestingly, in reaction against the anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany. Adolf Hitler came to power in January 1933, and shortly afterward came the first acts of persecution against Jews. In a comment published on April 8th of that year, E.B. White noted some of the grim happenings and remarked, quote, Thus, in a single day's developments in Germany, we go back a thousand years into the dark, end quote. The statement does not seem remarkable or daring today, but that early in the Nazi regime and for a depressing number of years thereafter, such a definitive condemnation was rare in the American press. Each successive year, of course, the news from Germany was darker. In a comment looking over the events of 1938, Walcott Gibbs wrote that, quote, In Germany, a helpless minority suffered a shameful and brutal persecution, unequaled in the memory of any man alive. It is unlikely that we have seen the end of that, end quote. Yoda wrote that condemning anti-Semitism and calling for any form of U.S. intervention in European affairs are very difficult, however, and for a long time the positions expressed in notes and comment on these matters were marked by bemused ambivalence. Such even-handedness became more difficult to sustain in 1938, when Germany invaded Austria and then Czechoslovakia, and close to impossible after the invasion of Poland and the subsequent declaration of war by Britain and France in September 1939. On the staff, the interventionists included Thurber, Sean, and Frank Sullivan, who wrote of Hitler in his 1939 end-of-the-year Greetings, Friends poem. Lieben Schramm, he wants, so well, let's hope he gets it soon in hell. White was of their number as well, but after his move to Maine in 1938, his familiar voice was less frequently heard in the magazine. His replacement, Gibbs, tended to be much more skeptical, but then, as Ross noted in a letter to White, quote, Gibbs is, of course, skeptical of everything, end quote. 
In a comment published on February 11, 1939, Gibbs took President Roosevelt sharply to task for supposedly directing threatening remarks to Germany. Quote, we believe that until the German and Italian governments perform legally hostile acts against us as a nation, it is indefensible for the president to give his official sanction to attacks on their internal policy, no matter how cruel and shameful it may appear to him personally. Mr. Roosevelt, in our opinion, is not employed to express moral attitudes. His first duty is the well-being of this country, a duty which includes doing his utmost to keep it out of avoidable wars, end quote. Ross himself was professionally the newspaper man's resistance to editorializing. Geographically, his native West was the bastion of isolationism and constitutionally opposed to beating any drums. But white, even in absentia, was his editorial conscience. And in June 1941, at a point in the European war, when sitting on the fence had become a nearly impossible balancing act, the editor sent a note of defense of editorial neutrality up to Maine. The magazine may have been disinclined to take a strong editorial position on the European hostilities, but they were surely and unmistakably reflected in its pages. Flanners and then Liebling's dispatches from Paris gave an invaluable sense of how the coming of war and then the war itself felt in apartments, offices, and streets. On the day Germany invaded Poland, St. Clair McElway, the managing editor for fact, considered who might write about the view from Britain and settled on Molly Panter Downs, a 33-year-old English novelist and short story writer who lived in a part of Surrey bordering on Sussex and had contributed to the magazine a handful of casuals and poems and one reporter at large, a 1937 piece about Jewish refugee children arriving at Victoria Station. He sent her this telegram. Can you cable us up to 2,000 words of human rather than political events, London and country, somewhat similar tone as Flanner's stuff from Paris? Stop. Would you be prepared? Send us cables and letters regularly as our London correspondent, if that seemed practicable later. Stop. Yoda continued. Panther Downs initially replied in the negative, since she was expecting evacuees at her house, but their arrival was canceled, and she filed a story two days later, the day Britain and France declared war on Germany, and was published in the issue of September 9th. As requested, she stressed the human factor. She wrote, All over the country, the declaration of war has brought a new lease on life to retired army officers who suddenly find themselves the commanders of battalions of willing ladies who have emerged from the herbaceous borders to answer the call of duty. Morris tends their windshields plastered with notices that they are engaged on business of the ARP or the WVS. Both volunteer services rock down quiet country lanes propelled by firm-lipped spinsters who yesterday could hardly have said boo to an aster. It was clear to everyone who read it that she had found the perfect tone, clear-eyed, good-humored, but never facetious, with an unfailingly firm lip herself, and that she was the perfect London correspondent, 
McElway's next cable aloud. In future, okay, discuss politics, strategy, etc., if interesting and you feel informed. Thus credentialed, Panther Downs filed indispensable letters from London throughout the war, sometimes weekly, sometimes fortnightly. In 1940, the Atlantic Monthly Press published a collection of them titled Letter from England. Like the novel and subsequent film, Mrs. Miniver, they did much to cement in the minds of Americans the image of Britishers as plucky, brave, and fundamentally sound. Panther Downs continued to contribute dispatches to the New Yorker after the fighting was over. Her final letter, published in 1984, was her 477th. As faithful listeners to the stories about our hero, the Silver King, I hope I've been able to share with you my passion for the New Yorker magazine. The expanse of the work, the way I've deployed it in its various forms on important missions for me, to my students, to my friends, to you as listeners. And I hope that you will think seriously about becoming a reader of one of the most amazing magazines in American history. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.